Indeed, Father, there is none like you, and it is our great joy and our privilege to gather together and in Jesus' name to acknowledge that reality. Father, as we grab our Bibles now and we open them, would you clear our minds, give us a a renewed focus, a, a renewed enthusiasm for your word, all of it, every part of it, that we would grow and we would develop as your people that would be, we would be a strong church, an obedient church, and that we would be a church that is in love with Jesus and that it shows through our obedience. Father, we want to do things your way. We recognize that we live in a world that is getting all out of kilter and they're forgetting you and they're not acknowledging you and they're running from you. And so help us as a church to run to you and to be very careful to walk within your will following your word. And so we apply ourselves to the study of the word and the application to our lives. Work in us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, congregation. If you don't know, some of you are new. I've been traveling back and forth, as are some of our staff pastors, as we do a restart with the Bakerton Bible Church, a community about eight miles from here. And uh, people always want to know right away, how did it go? What happened? There were 53 this morning, a little more of a normal group as in not that last week was abnormal, but we had about 68 last week on our very first Sunday to launch a new Bible church there. And I would say that this Sunday reflected a more normal attendance of people who are interested in, in maybe being a part of that little work. So you pray for us, Bakerton Independent Bible Church is the official name right now, and uh, for the next 12 weeks, I'll be cycling through two out of three weeks over there. Next Sunday's normal back here. Pastor Everett will be over there, and uh, we're just having a good time seeing what God's going to do. And uh, I want to welcome Jay Hundley. Has he been welcomed yet this morning? Jay, God bless you. Back from Afghanistan. Let's give him a hand. Jay, welcome. Welcome. And if you haven't already done so, you need to see Rich Beto before you leave, okay? Make sure you do that. All right. I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we dig into God's Word this morning. And as you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's time for us to learn a verse this morning. Are you ready? A little scripture memory, okay? Every once in a while we do this. Uh, today's verse is Psalm 46.1. Psalm 46.1. All right, let me read it to you. This is from the ESV, the English Standard Version, Psalm 46.1. And uh, by the way, do you memorize scripture at all on your own? It's a, it's a lost discipline, and I hope that you will uh, just every once in a while mark a verse in your Bible and get it down and memorize it. Here it is. Listen closely. It's somewhat familiar, and it's not too difficult. God is our refuge and strength. One more time. God is our refuge and strength. You got that part down? All right, here's the rest of it. A very present help in trouble. A very present help in trouble. Is that a great verse? That's a great verse, isn't it? Okay, let me say it. You, you hear it, and then we're going to say the whole thing together. Ready? Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's it. 
Are you ready? Listen to it one more time. Psalm 46.1, and we'll say the reference before and after the verse. Ready? Uh, you listen still one more time. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Are you ready? Together, Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. All right? This half of the uh, Psalm 46.1, good. This half of the aisle is going to say, Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength. You got it? Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength. This side is going to say, a very present help in trouble, Psalm 46.1. You got it? Here we go. Ready? You're going to memorize a verse one way or another here today. Here we go. Ready? Go. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in trouble, Psalm 46.1. How many of you believe that verse? That's a great verse, isn't it? I had two reasons to share that verse with you. One thing is, keep that, take that verse to the top of your television this week, would you? So when you're watching the news, you just remind yourself of Psalm 46.1, and then in your devotions, read the rest of the verses. Do not be moved. Look to God these days. These are crazy days in our world. But the second reason I wanted us to learn that verse is that it's part of our introduction. Now this scenario. Are you ready for a scenario? Okay. A big windstorm comes through. And you're in your house and a huge tree falls on your house. And it's raining. There's a tree through the roof. The carport ripped off in the wind. It smashed the windshield of your car. The electric is off. The weather is turning brutal cold the next day. Your wife just had triplets. Two of the three have a fever. And you can't get your chainsaw started. How do you feel? We're in need. Psalm 46.1, let's say it. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Good verse, okay? But let's continue our scenario. How great would it be if at that very moment, as the water is gushing now, the drywall has let loose, it is now ruining the carpet because the tree branches through the roof, you can't get in the car because the carport's down on it, nothing is right, you can't get your chainsaw to start, your babies are screaming, your wife is telling you it's your fault, the weather, <laughs> and right then... As you go out on your porch and you're quoting Psalm 46.1 to yourself, in the driveway pulls the deacon from your church. He gets out and he says, Hey, buddy, it's good to see you. Do you need some help right now? How do you feel about that? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're talking about the deacons in the local church. And do you know that this is a reality? That as true as Psalm 46.1 is, do you know that God most often uses people to accomplish his work? You know, he spoke the worlds into existence, Genesis 1.1, right? And, and so forth in all the first couple chapters. But once he created Adam, he put him to work. And from then on, the pattern of scripture is that God works through people. And as true as Psalm 46.1 is... Isn't it great to have that strong deacon get out of his car and look at your mess and say, let us help you. 
God uses people. God especially uses people who care. And everybody needs people to care about them. Would you agree with that? Let's read our text and remind ourselves. We have a three-point outline this morning. The first part is... Uh, the deacon's life. And we're going to remind ourselves what we looked at last week, the qualifications of the deacon, the deacon's life. The second point is the deacon's wife. And the third point, then, is the deacon's role in the church. What does this look like? What does it look like, this office of a deacon in the local church? First Timothy chapter 3, reading from the English Standard Version, verse 8 for our text today. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These are good guys, aren't they? We talked about this last week. They're to be mature. They're to be godly. They're to understand what they believe and hold to it without wavering. They're to be self-controlled, not addicted to wine, to have a motivation and a heart attitude that is clear. Their motives for ministry are right not for dishonest gain. We see in verse 10 that we talked about last week, they're to be observed, they're to be watched in the church before they're appointed to this position. And let them also be tested first. He didn't tell us what the test is, but that means that they're to be proven men. They're to be men who are reliable and we've watched them and we know that they are for real and that their walk is godly and spiritual in Christ Jesus. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. That is, they're above reproach, a lot like the overseer that we've been studying all summer. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That verse 13 is interesting, and that's basically our text right there, is point one of our message today, the deacon's life. The first thing we see, and what we talked about all last week, is that this this aspect of being a servant, this diakonos, this transliteration of this Greek word diakonos, that means one who serves, or a table waiter, that he is a facilitator of meeting the needs of the people around him in his church. We also talked about the fact that that is a calling to all believers, that we are to bear one another's burdens, aren't we? We're to love one another deeply. We're to help one another and assist one another in times of difficulty. That is the calling of all Christians in the Christian community and in God's church. But we see that in a like manner, look at in verse 8, he said, likewise... Deacons, in the same way that elders have this special overseeing position. And we've just studied the first seven verses all summer that these overseers watch and guard the doctrine of the church. They're the spiritual leaders of the church. They're the pastor teachers of the church. They're the buck stoppers. They're the ones that are keeping the church under a watchful eye. And they are also the ones who someday stand before God at a high level of accountability for those that they shepherd. It's a scary thing. Likewise, deacons. And so we believe that these are the two enduring offices of the church, established under apostolic leadership. Overseers and pastors then replace the apostolic leadership, and under the overseers, in a, in a, in a lower level of responsibility, under the authority of the overseers, then these deacons come in to be the servants of the church. 
We see right away that he took time to make sure we understand what their life looks like. The deacon's life is one of orderliness. We see that God cares more about the deacon's heart than he does the skill of their hands. Every dynamic in the list, every characteristic in the list has to do with his moral, his spiritual character. It doesn't have to do with whether he can do trim carpentry, whether he can replace elements in hot water heaters whether he can run a mop and a mop bucket. It has everything to do with his spiritual criteria. Listen, you want to serve the Lord effectively. You want to see, you're walking around, man, God never uses me. I don't know what to do. And it's like, you know what you do? You get this list and you just build this stuff into your life. You just become above reproach. You just become faithful. You just become proven. You just begin to serve and then God will open doors for you. You watch it happen. There's an interesting comment that I want to look at in verse 13. Look at that. It says, it says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. Bible students aren't totally clear on what exactly that means, but I think what it means and what it seems to me, the way to the evidence, is that it largely has to do with how the people in the church will esteem them. And isn't that true? As you learn to serve, Who do you appreciate more than somebody who comes alongside you in a time of need and stress and demands that are overwhelming your life? It's nice to have your pastor come and pray with you. It's nice to have your pastor come and while the babies are screaming and the water's gushing through the ceiling to have your pastor say, let me show you Psalm 46.1. But but what is it than when a deacon the chainsaw going and more pickup trucks are backing in because he's been on the phone and the deacons are there to serve you and meet your needs. I say, wow, God really knew what he was doing to give us spiritual leaders and to bring in servants who are proven and trustworthy. A practical matter to speak of why his life has to be in order is because when he comes in your house and it's a mess, you have to be able to trust him, don't you? You don't want him talking behind your back. You might have even lost your temper and thrown the coffee pot that afternoon before when the tree came through. The deacon has to be able to handle all that and calm your wife. And he might even have to take, um, you know, resources and move them around and empty out closets. You need trustworthy, reliable men to be overseeing all these kinds of things. That's the deacon's life. It has to be in order to serve in this Super servant role. Everyone is a servant. Everyone can show up when the tree goes through the roof. Everyone can show up when there's been a wreck. Everyone can show up when you need to dig your potatoes and you broke your ankle. Everyone can help serve. But there's this layer, this level of an overseeing servanthood in the church. And it begins by watching the deacon's life. I want you to notice, though, now as we move on, that in verse 11, the Apostle Paul interrupts himself and he begins to talk about the deacon's wife. Isn't that interesting? He's going along, and he actually interrupts the flow of the passage with the qualifications for a deacon's life, talks about his wife, then he comes back to more qualifications. That's kind of an interesting word order. Look at verse 11. He says in verse 10 that the deacon has to be tested and so forth and prove himself blameless. And then immediately he says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, Faithful in all things. And then verse 12, he goes right back to the deacon. Deacons must, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. That has to do with his fidelity and his commitment and his marriage. He's got a strong, sound marriage. But what's this aspect about the deacon's wife? First of all, let's look at what he says her qualifications are. This is what a deacon's wife should look like. 
So, men, if you're married and you aspire to be a deacon, you need to ask yourself, do I have a wife like this? And wives, if you have a husband who wants to be a deacon, you need to ask yourself, is there anything in my life that would disqualify my husband from being a deacon because I don't meet this criteria? Here's the, here they are. It's four items, four points on the checklist, and you'll notice that they're somewhat parallel to the leading list for the deacons and even the elders. The first thing he says is that the deacon's wife is to be dignified. The, e, the ESV uses the word dignified. I don't know. That doesn't, I don't think, necessarily mean that you need to be able to walk with a book on your head. You know, that excerpt, I am dignified. The NIV, I think, captures the essence of the meaning of the word a little bit better when it says, it translates that point, worthy of respect. Now we're talking, aren't we? Worthy of respect. And doesn't it make sense? You know, it's kind of, that's probably the understatement of the morning that the Bible makes sense. But don't you like it when you read something and you say, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. I have deacons in my church. They serve our church. They serve our congregation. And their wives also are worthy of respect. It's a good thing, isn't it? It's the way it ought to be. How, what's it do to a church if the elders and the deacons have wives that are all wild side and crazy? Years and years ago, I encountered a situation with a young man whose wife was not dignified. She was not worthy of respect. And that young man, they don't go to this church, that young man wanted and aspired to be in spiritual leadership. And one day in the hallway of the church, as we were leaving, his wife was way down the hall, and she didn't know that I was there. You know, do you know that people act differently when they know their pastor's watching? And so what I would remind you is that Jesus is watching. It doesn't really matter what the pastor thinks, ultimately. But I happened to observe, and he was finishing up some detail of shutting down. He was serving in the church, but he was not a deacon. But I knew that he aspired to be a deacon and a a spiritual leader. And his wife, from way down the hall, screamed at him. Let's go now! And she was angry, and she was frustrated, and she was ready to get out of there. Now, I know that we all have our moments, don't we? But most of us have enough self-control not to have those moments in the hallway at church. And I remember, note to self, as the pastor of this church, he might be ready for leadership, but she's not ready for him to be in leadership. It matters, doesn't it? Our spouses worthy of respect, that they not undermine the gospel, that they not undermine our own reputation. Worthy of respect. The second thing about the deacon's wife here, not only is she to be dignified, but she's not to be a slanderer, the ESV says. Um, The NIV says, not a malicious talker. The NAS, the New American Standard, says, not malicious gossips. So the ESV says, not a slanderer, and the word slanderer is actually the most accurate translation for that word. It comes from a Greek word. See if you recognize this word, Hector. Diablos. Diablos. What is that? The devil. The Greek word diablos is translated into English here, slanderer, and isn't slanderer one of the names of the devil? He's a slanderer. 
the NIV and the NAS sort of do a transliteration of it. Not a malicious talker or not a malicious gossiper. He, she is not to be a slanderer. What is a slanderer? Somebody who puts and hurts people with their words. Somebody who uses words inappropriately to the negative effect of their sisters and brothers in Christ. Somebody who cannot be trusted with their tongue and their speech. Boy, that will undermine worthy of respect so quickly, won't it? Inappropriate speech will undermine worthy of respect in a second. You can live for years of steady, stable life, and in a few moments of inappropriate words and malicious talk and malicious gossip and talking about other people, undermine. It's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to do. Man, you can't believe this guy. Man, you can't believe what they did. What about this? And especially in the role of a spiritual leader, a man who's an overseer, a man who is a, is a deacon, he's going to know some things about people and he might go home and talk to his wife and debrief for the day or debrief on the occasion of what happened. And then his wife, a malicious talker. And the next thing you know, and this has happened to me, I'm out and about with the congregation and somebody says, hey, pastor, I heard about, and I say, how did you hear about that? Connect the dots, buddy. Connect the dots. You see, spiritual leadership is a trustworthy role. It doesn't mean that we don't all have our moments. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't say, oh, I should have never said that. It doesn't mean that we don't find ourselves sometimes going to people and look them in the eye and say, I said some things about this guy and I should have never said that. Would you please forgive me? But the standard for the wife of the deacon is that she's not to be a slanderer. The next phrase in the ESV is sober-minded. It's temperate in NIV. Sober-minded. It's also tracking with the not given to wine. If you look at the qualities up above for the uh, deacon, you see that these are tracking kind of similarly. That temperance also has an idea of sober-mindedness or self-control, not being under the influence of something other than the Holy Spirit and a faithful walk. And then the fourth dynamic of this wife in verse 11, notice that she is to be faithful in all things. Isn't that a good phrase? Is that a great phrase? I mean, that is almost the highest compliment you could pay somebody, isn't it? Do you know that person? She is just faithful in all things. Isn't that a compliment? It just means they're reliable. It means they're trustworthy. It means if they say they're going to do it, they do it. It just means that they are a put-together person. We all know, I'll say it again, that none of us are perfect. But here's four criteria for the deacon's wife that are so important. I'll say it again. Women, do you have a husband who aspires spiritual leadership? Check yourself in these four areas and make sure you're not failing in these four areas. Husbands, you aspire leadership? Ask yourself, do I meet the criteria of the deacon's life? And number two, do I meet the criteria of the deacon's wife? I want to stop for just a minute, though, and I want to say that there's three questions that come out of this verse 11. Because some of you might be reading your study Bibles, and you know that there's some comments there that raise question about the translation here. And as Paul has given us the criteria for the overseer, the criteria for the deacon, and he jumps in on verse 11 and he says, the deacon's wife, he then goes back to the deacon. You notice, look at your, let your eyes go down to your Bible. You notice in verse 11 that the wives, he used that same bridge phrase, that the wives likewise, in the same manner, they're wives. But the Greek word that's translated wives here, guess what? It can be translated just as well, women. 
It can be translated women or wife equally, and there's nothing in the context that defines it down far enough for us to know exactly whether he, Paul means wife or woman. And so then you say, well, I've been reading my Bible, and turn there really quickly, Romans chapter 16, verse 1, for example. Romans chapter 16, verse 1, and you are finishing up reading ahead for Tim Hellman's Sunday school class, and, and you're getting ready for the last half of the book of Romans. Kudos, right? I can borrow your bow. Okay. All right. And Romans 16, 1, and it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. And guess what the word servant there is? It's diakonos. And some people say, well, wait a minute. Maybe there was a role of deaconess in the local church. Is there anything wrong with women being deaconesses, if that's a word? And in verse 11, maybe Paul was actually introducing a third category of office in the church, overseers, deacons, and the deaconess is. All right? And so you say, well, what would be wrong with that? And in fact, some of you might say, I've even been a part of a church And I've had people ask me here, does Fellowship Bible Church have deaconesses? And I would say that from the commentaries that I read that are very reliable New Testament scholars, that it's it's almost evenly split. Three or four, five different commentaries that I looked at that some imply that they take the position that Paul is actually introducing a role of a deaconess here. And they use Romans 16.1 as Phoebe as that Paul was recognizing that there was a deaconess in the church at Rome there and he wanted her greeted. And then others argue that no, because the Apostle Paul has interrupted, it's not normal. Why would he have inserted this right in the middle of the deacon himself, the criteria of the deacon's life? Why would he then introduce deaconess, he indeed is talking about the deaconess, the deacon's wife. That's the position I hold to, but let me say something. I don't think it would be wrong at all for us to have deaconesses. It's not, it's not conclusive enough to say, oh, it would be wrong. And so what would be wrong with having a group of women who are identified as proven according to verse 11 in their Christian testimony in the church, and that they then carried out this role of a deaconess? Some churches do that to organize their hospitality committee or things like that. And certainly the women play such a valuable role in ministering to the needs of people in times of stress and duress. So there wouldn't be anything wrong with it. We have not adopted that position here. Um, I wouldn't get my head chopped off for the interpretation there. But it seems to me that it's logical in the flow of the passage that he indeed is talking about the deacon's wife, which then raises a second question... And that is, well, why would a deacon's wife have to meet this kind of criteria? If that is the deacon's wife, why would we have to meet that criteria? And I would say that it's because of the kind of ministry that we're going to build on in just a minute that we anticipate a deacon gets involved in that it very much makes sense for him to have a wife who's engaged and involved and helping him discern. You, You ever watch a man try to discern the needs of people? Yeah, everything's all right in this room. Sure. No problem. Hey, will you go check on so-and-so? Hey, so-and-so. I, yeah, everything good? Yep, good. Okay, Jank. See you later. That's a man way, right? I'm overstating the case. But how many times have I been with my wife at my side, and we visit and we talk, and what did she do? She heard something from the wife when we were talking about 
how big the buck was that we missed. She was over here talking to the wife, and the wife had tears coming out of her eyes, and, you know, you found out everything wasn't okay. And I think that the nature of the deacon's role is a, is a an, an intimate role of involvement with people in times of need and duress and stress, even conflict. And I think that God in his wisdom pointed out that a deacon's wife plays an important role in assisting him in meeting the needs of people. That's, I think that's the answer. It makes sense to me. Again, I have no problem with it being deaconesses that are also ministering, but it also makes sense to me that it would be a husband and a wife who show up at this guy's house in a time of duress and need and not a deacon and a deaconess from two different marriages. Okay. One more question, and this is one of the reasons people think that this is the office of deaconess instead of a deacon's wife, and they say, ah, but, question number three, how come the Apostle Paul addressed the deacon's wife, but he never, he was silent about the overseer's wife? So that's question number three. Why was Paul silent about the overseer's wife? I think I said that backwards. Why was Paul silent about the overseer's wife, but he goes into detail giving us the criteria for a deacon's wife? What's the big deal? Isn't an overseer that much more important in the church? They're the guys that are the umbrella over the total ministry. The deacons come in underneath the overseers, the pastors, the elders. And I would say that two parts to my answer to that, and it's an argument from silence, but my thought on that is that, number one, the given, God-given office of elder, overseer, bishop is namely, number one, a public teaching ministry and a spiritual leadership ministry, and the wife is not included at that level. Remember, Paul gave specific instruction that the women were to be silent in the church. And he's not looking for the elder's wife to be up alongside of him. Now, I want to tell you that I think the second part of the answer is that the criteria of a qualified elder is that his household's in order. He's a one-woman kind of a man. He knows how to administrate his house. And I take it that inside that framework, and I think you would agree with me, that it's pretty hard to have a household that's in order unless you have a mighty good wife. To be busy about the ministry, but you've got a wife who's godly, who loves the Lord. And in a sense, I'm saying it just goes without saying that the elder's marriage is intact. He has a godly wife. She's a spiritual lady. She knows how to handle herself. Paul just didn't mention it. And so that's my take on it. Question number one, could this be a deaconess position in the church? Yeah, it probably could be. Do I think that? Pastor Van thinks it's not, that it's probably just talking about his wife. Would I get a lot of heartburn if we started, if the elders decided that it would be good for the administrating and the putting order of our ministry to have a, a deaconess group? I don't think I would have too much heartburn over that. I think I could live with that. But I think that he's really talking about the wife of the deacon, and I think the reason he addresses the wife in such a way is because of the kind of work that they're going to be involved in together that no doubt will end up involving both of them. How many times have I gone into people's homes and there's been a mess, and there's a needy wife and young children, and I don't know what to do with them. And I've got to take care of the, the difficulty and help figure out what's happening. And then I can say, honey, will you take, the, take these people? Come sit with them. Go to my car and sit in the back seat with my wife. Do whatever. You know, things like that. So I think it all makes sense. 
Paul was silent, though, about the elder's role, because this is a different role of the elder's wife. It was a different role. So now there's a third point to our message this morning that I want to address in the final few minutes, and that has to do with the application of this text. Okay, so we've looked at the deacon's life. It's a qualified life. It's a, it's a tested individual, somebody that we've observed, somebody that the elders recognize is ready for this. We recognize that his wife meets a certain criteria. So we know the deacon's life is in order. We know the deacon's wife is in order. Now let's wrap up by looking at the deacon's role. Let's look in our text for the deacon's role. Hmm. I don't see it, do you? Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul extensively teaches on the life of the deacon and nowhere in the New Testament, essentially, are we taught what a deacon is supposed to do. It just is there. This is what a deacon does. So now we've got to put our thinking caps on and our observation cap on and we have to do a little Bible study and we have to say, okay, so let's step back from the New Testament. Let's look at it at large and let's say, what did the deacons do and what makes sense that deacons do here. What do we learn from this? I'd like to suggest, number one, that we learn what the deacon's role is, number one, from the literal meaning of the word deacon. Number one, we learn the deacon's role from, number one, the literal meaning. Remember, we said it's diakonos, and it's the word servant. You could translate it slave, even, but it's more of a servant word, doulos, and some of the other words translated in the New Testament literally mean slave, somebody with no rights whatsoever. This servant clearly is somebody who is facilitating the needs of others, diakonos. And so point number one under the deacon's role is we know this, that it is a role of servanthood. It is a role of servanthood. It is designed to meet the needs of others. Now, that totally makes sense that we don't have a detailed job description list because you know how we are with lists, right? We make a list, and if it's on the list, I do it, and if it's not on the list, I don't do it. And instead, he backs up. He said he's a qualified guy, and he's a servant to the church. Now go do it. That kind of works, doesn't it? Because you say, how do I serve? Oh, I heard a prayer request the other day. And -and so-and-so has to go to the hospital, and they have young kids and their husband is, has been shipped off for several weeks of work. And if you're a deacon sitting in the church and you heard that prayer request, what are you asking yourself? You should be asking yourself, I wonder how I can serve that family. And you heard the prayer request, and so instead of waiting for the phone call, instead of waiting for somebody to say, will you go over there and mow their lawn, you should immediately find that family and you say, I heard in the prayer request today, that you're having to go in for surgery, you have young kids, and your husband's going to be away for two weeks. How is it that that we can facilitate your life and help you? What are your needs? Can I ask you a question? How great is it if something like that happens to you? And it's a qualified, trusted person who has a wife who's nice and qualified and trusted. You see? That's why a deacon. Because now what? The husband's gone, the wife's there, the kids are there. And the deacon's facilitating, he might be over there moaning. We need trustworthy, godly people to do this kind of thing. You heard in the news, there's a wreck. And you happen to see, I didn't hear about this, but look at right there. It says, well, those people go to our church. And the bigger our church is, the more things like that can happen. You hear things, that person, this person over here you heard, he lost his job. 
This person over here, you were talking out in the foyer when you got coffee that so-and-so was saying, man, I had a terrible week. I had all these flat tires and I can't get my car started and I got to go do this and I got to go do that. If you're the deacon, what are you doing? Are you just saying, be warmed and filled, brother, be on your way. God in his wisdom put deacons in the church to serve the needs of people. We've spent some time at Fellowship Bible Church talking about this. I wouldn't say that we've attained. I think we're heading the right direction. We're less and less concerned that it be a deacon who opened the door on Sunday morning and make sure the climate is right in this room. It's not what it says a deacon does in the Bible. We're less and less concerned if it's a deacon out on the lawnmower. We're less and less concerned if it's a deacon on a building committee trying to figure out what the world we're going to do for space around here. There's many people in the body who are skilled and can do those kinds of things. But we're much more concerned about the fact that as people's needs grow, and do you know that we're entering a season in our country where I really believe in the next decade, unless the God spares us, unless God spares us, that we are going to have needs like we've never known. See, we've been a proud, strong people, self-sufficient. You can just slap it on the credit card and take care of yourself. You can just do this. You can just do that. I think we're entering a window of a new dimension of time in our country where people's needs are going to be more magnified than ever. And the deacon role in the local church is going to be more important than ever. People without work, people who can't pay their bills, people who have all kinds of mess going on in their marriage and their home, people who have all kinds of illness and problems, people with aging difficulties, people with all kinds of problems like that, what do they do? The deacon is on full alert. Howdy, folks. Can I help? How great is that? So, first of all, we learn from their name, the literal meaning of the word. Let's quickly read Acts chapter 6 and... And we not only do we have the literal meaning of the word to learn from, but we have on number two, we have a biblical model. We have a biblical model. And this isn't exactly a local church with deacons. This is the apostles and the church in Jerusalem. It's Acts chapter 6. And it'll only take us a second to look at this and get the point. Acts chapter 6. We have this biblical model that I think serves well for what our deacons role is supposed to be. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, that is, the followers of Christ, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, the twelve disciples, summoned the full number of the disciples. They gathered everybody. And they said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Does the phrase serve tables remind you of a Greek word I've been teaching you? The diakonos? Okay? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit. Does that sound like qualified men who've met a standard? And so this is exactly what the apostles did and the disciples did. Listen. The church was growing. If you read on in the end of the passage, you see that it was growing. There's literally thousands of people now. They have a little interracial issue going on in their church. And they've got the people who are, they're Jewish in, in background, but they're Greeks. They, they live in the Greek culture and they speak a, a, a Greek. And then you've got the Hebrew Jews who are the pure Jews. We're real Jews. Those Greeks, they're not real Jews. Or they've married in or whatever. You know, you've got this Hellenistic, that's the Greek 
Jews, and they had adopted the Greek lifestyle more. They had a little different language. They even read out of the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so they even read out of a different language Bible. And so the daily distribution meant, see, in this day, there wasn't welfare programs. There wasn't, you know, the senior saints luncheon, meals on wheels. And as the church grew, there was also some level of uh, disparagement because of Christianity. You, some people lost their jobs. There were significant needs in the church. And we've talked before about the fact that this was an era of no middle class. This is an era of, of kind of wealthy people and kind of poor people. And the poor people worked for the wealthy people, and that was about it. And it wasn't like an affluent culture in which we live where people had means of working extra and using credit cards or mobility where you could you know, get help from people and things. They weren't as self-sufficient. They were more dependent upon one another. They had less resources. And there was a daily distribution, and there's a debate on the passage, whether it was actually food or it was distribution of money for them to buy food. But it had to do with the governing and watching over of the widows in the church who couldn't take care of themselves completely. We're going to talk more in detail in First Timothy chapter 5 about the church's role in caring for de- widows. But here's what was happening the disciples who are responsible for praying and preaching and teaching find themselves getting involved in all this. Their phone is ringing all the time. People are lining up outside their office. People have needs. I don't have my Aunt Matilda needs food, and then they need food, and they need food. They said, wait a minute. We, here it is Sunday. We don't, even, we don't have our Bible study ready. We haven't prayed for all day here. We haven't been keeping up with our prayer list. We haven't been teaching. And they said, let's do this. Let's find some table waiters around. Let's find some guys who are going to come in and they can take care of the physical needs of the people because it is far too important for us to preach and pray effectively. It doesn't mean that they're superior. It doesn't mean that they walk around in pomp. It just, listen, what good is the church if the elders and the pastors don't even have time to read their Bible and pray? That's the point. And I'll tell you, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to end up neglecting your preparation, your reading time, your studying time. If you don't have growing pastors and elders, spiritually speaking, you're not going to grow spiritually. If you don't have a prayer-minded group of elders and deacons, don't forget the prayer time for our missionaries tonight at 6 o'clock, by the way, right here in room 106. If you're not praying, your elders aren't praying, how's God going to work? And so they said, let's appoint these guys to serve the people This was generated out of the conflict that came because they felt like the people who were getting most of the direction of food and money were the Judaic Jews, the Hebrew Jews, and that the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews were being neglected. They were probably smaller in number, for one thing, or probably way more of the Hebrew Jews and much fewer of the Hellenistic Jews, widows. So there was probably a number of things that were factoring in. I I doubt that any of the leaders of the church were ill-intended. It just came out looking like that. And the next thing you know, you have division in the church. You have spiritual leaders who don't have time to do their lesson preparation. And you have people who are divided and disunified. And so bring in who? Bring in who? The servants. The servants. Do you see God's wisdom in the order of the church? That's the role of the deacon. It is a general, multi-purpose need-meeting role where we serve people at the point of their need. In a time of crisis, in a time of defeat, 
in a time of weakness, times of sickness and death. Can you see the timelessness of God's word here? Can you name a people group around the world? Can you name a culture of any time where people don't have needs, people don't have stress, people don't get sick, people don't die, people don't have conflict? That is common to all people everywhere. So guess what? When God instituted his word, the church in Malawi has deacons to serve the church because they have people who have needs for food and people who are stressed out, people who have malaria and sickness going on so that they can't water their cattle and and hoe their garden. And so the deacons help administrate the needs of the people. In an affluent culture like ours, we have a growing symptom of joblessness, of people who can't bring the two ends together in their life. Our deacons, it might include financial counseling. Our deacons might find out that they need marriage counseling and pass them off to the elders. Listen, there's nothing wrong if you're going in the hospital to get a hospital call from one of our deacons coming to your bedside. Where's my pastor? Well, your pastor couldn't make it. He's in the study, studying for Sunday. Don't be offended by that. That's the pattern of God's word. We'll do our best to minister effectively. But when you have a deacon show up at your bedside when you're sick and ill, or if you have a deacon show up in your driveway when there's a tree through your roof, you're a blessed person and you're part of the local church the way God designed it to be. Will you pray for our deacons? They have families. They're busy. Joe Palmer is one of our greatest servants in this church. Hardworking. That boy gets up at 2.30 in the morning to drive over to the quarry. And I see him go by here in his toilet at 5 o'clock at night. How do you do that? How do you do that? And then you want to call him at 9.30, 10 o'clock at night and say, Hey, Aunt Matilda's water heater is leaking. Can you go take a look at that thing? No, you just say, Let Aunt Matilda call the plumber and pay it. Well, if people have needs, and I'll tell you something of all people, and I'm just picking out Joe Palmer at random, these deacons would drop everything and go. We can only deal with things that we know about, and we can only address things uh, that God puts in our path so that we have a sensitivity. Pray for our deacons that they would have a sensitivity. This is an evolving office in our church. This is something that we're trying to get up at a higher level. The deacons themselves are trying to organize table groups of men who do Bible study. And out of those table groups, as the congregation grows, you can't have five men going all over taking care of the whole congregation. It's too many people. So we have to have a breakdown and administrate. And we need wisdom. Your pastor needs wisdom. Fellowship Bible Church, about a year and a half, two years ago, entered a phase where we are no longer a bigger, small church. We're actually a smaller, big church. And that changes the way things are done. And I'm telling you, all of us, from the deacons to the elders to the pastors, we're trying to adjust to that and know how to lead this group effectively as we become a bigger, a smaller, big church and enter kind of the bigger church world and still maintain the personal touch and the relationships and the ministering and have table waiters waiting to help meet your needs. It's the kind of church you want, isn't it? You see the value of that? Let's bow in prayer. Before we close in prayer, and we're actually going to close with a hymn, traditional hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee, because one of the things I want you to get out of this message is that ultimately, we don't, it's not a work system here. It's not a drive to do things to please people or to get scratched on the back or to have esteem with people. But out of our love for Christ, 
generates our Christian living, doesn't it? When we love Jesus, then we want to obey him. And when we love Jesus, then our burden is light of ministering to other people. That's why we're going to close with that hymn. And so, clearly, one of the questions we want to ask ourselves is, are we in love with Jesus to the degree that we love people, like 1 John says? But I want you to ask yourself, are you, are you in your heart conforming to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ in the role of servanthood, he who took upon himself the form of a servant, he who washed the disciples' feet, he who demonstrated the ultimate act of table waiting by going to the cross for us in our place. Do you have that kind of an attitude in your heart? And then, as the ministry grows, men, some of you men who still have strength, it doesn't matter your age, but you still have strength for service, and some of you younger men as well, aspiring for service, does God put it in your heart to be a deacon one day? Would you begin to pray about that? Would you begin to order your life and prepare to be a deacon? Father, help us to adjust ourselves to these things. Help us to be sensitive to the needs of people and to not always be just consumed with our own needs. Thank you for this model that the Lord Jesus gave in washing the disciples' feet and ultimately in going to the cross and as our substitute. Father, we want to demonstrate the love of Christ and we want to demonstrate that we love you by loving one another and by serving one another. Please bless our deacons with wisdom as they meet, as they administrate. As there's, they're kind of a catch-all group right now doing a lot of different things. And as we seek to evolve this ministry into the actual minister of mercy's group that it needs to be, and how important and impacting this can be upon our church, which ultimately will demonstrate that love throughout the community. Help us with these things, Lord. Give us a growing understanding. Help us to know how to make changes where changes do. Help us to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Father, may we just be a loving, caring, generous Bible church that you can use. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.